1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu.
0: And I'm Alex Diamond.
1: And we are the hosts of this special series.
0: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
1: These conversations center the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
0: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
1: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We look forward to hearing from you.
0: Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: And so we begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. Today, Alex and I are so thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Eli Wilson, the author of Front of the House, Back of the House, Race and Inequality in the Lives of Restaurant Workers, published by New York University Press in 2020. Uh, Dr. Eli Wilson is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of New Mexico and Alex and I are so honored to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me um, to, to both of you. This is this is really an honor, and I, I I must say I love the theme of this show. So I'm really excited to uh, be able to to be able to talk about the marginalia of the experience yeah. of doing ethnography.
1: Yeah, yeah. and uh, go ahead, Alex.
0: Yeah, thank you, Eli. Um, no, I was just going to say, even even before we get into the marginalia, uh, we we like to start by hearing um, a little bit about your journey into becoming a sociologist, uh, and also what interested you in ethnography specifically.
2: Sure, yeah, uh, well, let's see. I, I don't know what's distinctive or not so distinctive about my story versus others, but... Uh... You know, I, I came out of uh, undergraduate at, at Wesleyan University, and I was a sociology major, so there was that tie-in. I also must say, my, my mother is a cultural anthropologist, so uh, I, I always like to say that I, I was really playing on home turf, um, the idea of thinking deeply, <laughs> deeply about social life, especially sort of those micro moments, those, those tensions, those curiosities. I mean, that was all stuff that... Um, oh gosh i've I've heard you know i've I've heard in my ears since I was in high school really um, courtesy of my family <laughs> um but you know why why ethnography specifically um you know i I think it's hard to tell that story without talking about why I came to restaurants um i i did not uh it was definitely uh, i i came to ethnography uh, inductively i mean to use that word loosely um I was somebody who wanted to go into uh, the restaurant industry and and possibly more specifically, I really wanted to work in craft beer. Um, and that was that was my goal. That was my wide eyed you know young 20 something goal uh, was to open a brew pub and and work in restaurants and sling beer and and you know just oh my gosh, it all seemed amazing when I was young. <laughs> and uh, that drove me to l a. Uh, where I had a couple cousins who um, really had that very same idea but were a couple years older than me um, and I worked at their restaurant and and really kind of fast forward uh, fast forward a, a year possibly more and I was you know I, I I came to restaurants and by way of restaurants I rediscovered ethnography and and sociology more broadly just absolutely was fascinated by what I saw. It was a world unto itself, as I'm sure we'll talk more about, that is being, you know, being and, and, and you know, inhabiting restaurants very fully. Um, and that drove me, you know, got my mind turning again. It, it, it got me thinking about questions that in my mind, only ethnography is equipped to, to answer.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, just to go on the same tangent, uh, the book is an exploration of two unequal labor worlds, so to speak, that are enclosed within the upscale restaurant scene in LA. Using ethnography, you study the persisting inequalities between two groups uh, that both work at the restaurant, the white college-educated server group who operate in the front of the house and Latino immigrants who work at the back and are completely out of customer view. We particularly loved how you said that you intend this book to stand out uh, or stand as an em- empirically grounded account of how service work and social inequality come to be intertwined in ways that go largely unnoticed by the people who patronize these establishments. We both certainly can never look at a restaurant the same way again. So thank you for writing this really important book.
2: Oh, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's just my pleasure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, you already uh, spoke a little bit about how ethnography is intertwined with you starting your own restaurant or working at restaurants. But how did this become like a full-fledged research project?
2: Mm, yeah. Um, well, you know, kind of picking up where, where I, what I was previously saying, I think that the kernel of my thinking about the book um came came well before field work was something that I had in mind and, and frankly well before I was I was ever uh, formally enrolled in, in, another, um, in another sociology program, which, of course, was at, was at UCLA. Um, but it really came from this driving, almost nagging question, which was, you know, I knew uh, restaurants and I knew maybe uh, you know, beer and, and bars more specifically. I knew that from the point of view of customers and from my own, my own passions for sort of consuming and participating within that space. What I didn't know was what went on behind the scenes. So work, working in restaurants gave me a glimpse into that world. Um, and you know, while I was aware from doing some other, well, I, I might have been uh, you know curious and aware of what that was like in the front of house, uh, that is, you know, directly interfacing with customers, guests. Um, I had no idea. Uh, what went on even deeper within that world. And that is in in relation to back of house and more invisible spaces. I mean, just really tracing service, going backwards and, and, and further and further back until you get to places that um, start, <laughs> you know, it, it, where, where um, you know, the language starts to change. The music starts to change, right? Um, the, the color of people's skin starts to change, something I talk about. Uh, and that started to fascinate me. And those kinds of divides that uh, are, are lived are, are you know points of to points of tension, sometimes points of, of joy and laughter. Um but ultimately um you know w- what I came to understand as as the stuff, you know, the meat of inequality. That's the stuff that was those were questions well before I ever uh went back into grad school.
0: So in in the book, you uh, you talk about three different restaurants, and actually, you you harness um, a comparison of the three. These are all upscale, or relatively upscale restaurants in in Los Angeles, but they have kind of different brands. And in fact, this branding is is part of the the allure, and and especially in the front of the house, um, is kind of figures into manager decisions about who to hire, which is crucial to your analysis. And we can talk more about that, um, but. We're interested, like, it. I think I gathered that at one of those restaurants you were working in before starting graduate school. Is that right? Um, and then also, like, how did you make the, the decision to, to to work in three different restaurants, and, and how did you choose these restaurants?
2: Yeah, well, to, I guess to set the record straight on that point, Alex, um, I wasn't – actually, all three of these restaurants began um, – you know, kind of coincided with my journey in graduate school. Uh, I, it, it's complicated because I think the story, you know, the arc of the story that I was just recounting, um, I was, I worked in, oh gosh, three restaurants prior to beginning field work. So there's an interesting, uh, sort of three and three, uh, yeah, but there was, there was actually, um, a, a fairly delineated break between sort of my pre-graduate school, uh, restaurant experience, just being in the industry full-time, um, and, and then, and then post um uh so anyway you you asked about how did i come to the decision of those three um you know i i think everything happened every everything happened uh, from the ground up you know none of this was preconceived um i really you know i entered the field driven to explore um maybe one restaurant. I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in the mind frame back in, oh gosh, 2011 and 12, when I'm, I'm thinking about this, I really wanted to just dig into one restaurant. And uh, I knew that I, you know, I, at the time I was reading some, some books, uh, some really fantastic books, uh, Greta Favpales, um I, I might be mispronouncing her last name, um, I was thinking about Gary Allen Fine's kitchens. I was thinking about um, oh gosh, even uh, Barbara Ironreich. You know her her when she's you know when she's working within that really um, kind of I don't, don't want to call it maybe dingy, a um, little bit lower end, um, you know kind of diner. So I was reading that kind of literature and I was thinking, okay, well, what would be a different angle? And simultaneously, I was thinking about my own experience and thinking, what would push me? And I think what interested me the most was, was really penetrating into uh, more higher-end spaces, um, more spaces of luxury, spaces that were hard to access. They were hard to access as a, as a, as a customer because of the, the, the financial resources involved um, and, um, and you know sort of that, that, that cultural capital that you need to kind of embody to, to know how to operate in that space. But I think also as an ethnographer, what would push me... To, to reach, to, to reach for something that I don't know, take the assets that I have and reach for something um, beyond. And for me, that was, that was, that was working you know, in service in spaces that cared about service, right? This is not a space where it was just, oh, in hamburgers and, you know, um, yeah, I'll take another order of fries. Absolutely not. It was service as an experience. And that experience was the stuff I wanted to, to, to really uncover, uncover.
1: Yeah. uh, And, you know, the book hinges, as I mentioned before, on the comparison between workers in the front of the house and workers in the back of the house. But it seems like your actual participation as a worker was mostly in the front of the house. So we were curious to know how this affected your understanding of the dynamics of the restaurants and what you did as part of your fieldwork to try to get as close as possible to the back of the house experiences.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a, that's a great insight. It's certainly nothing that I hide. My my point of access as an ethnographer, um, and you know, I, I talk a lot about the fact that this this comes from my social characteristics um, as a white appearing, you know, upper middle class, college educated um, man, um, and and I, that was you know those are characteristics. Uh, of course, some you know something I talk a lot about in the book, but those those characteristics were the norm rather than the exception working in uh, the front of house, which may come to a surprise to some, maybe not all, um, you know, the fact that those uh, from a degree of privilege um, are actually the norm within these spaces. Um, you know, upscale restaurants are not settings uh, where, you know, it's it's the typical, you know, this, this sort of trope of a, um, you know, kind of Uh, You know, low wage worker, um, limited education, you know, relative sources of of, uh, underprivileged population. That's not the case. I mean, that's certainly the case in the industry abroad, uh, but less so in in the kinds of settings that I was uh, maybe most interested in. So anyway, um, that was my point of access. And I, you know, I, I certainly don't try to hide that. Um, And I absolutely agree with you that that shaped my my view of restaurants. I was seeing the restaurant primarily from that point of view and and sort of looking outward, looking at management from that point of view, looking at guests, guests and customers. I'm so trained to say guests that I remember that sort of categorically we're talking about customers here. And then certainly looking at looking at back of house, looking at the kitchen and looking at, um, you know, the spaces deeper within that setting. Um, but really, looking mostly from the perspective of of you know being being physically and also socially part of the front of the house. Um, so, to your question about how did I, um, you know, how did I how did I bridge some of that data collection? <laughs> I, I think that's a great point, and it's something that as the project developed, I became more and more aware of. Um, and I say that because, in full honesty, I was not so aware of that as I began the project. I was so invested in, you know becoming a part of this space, um, you know, developing rapport, developing a deep understanding of what it was like to do my job um, you know w- within this kind of setting. Um, and so, you know, it was something that I came to a little bit later. and once it became important, you know, uh, increasingly important to me to have to, to to want to know the world of the back of house more, um, it, that was the time in which I changed, I actually changed my behavior within restaurants. Um, I started spending breaks, for instance, with, uh, with, with intentionally with, with cooks, which, by the way, <laughs> made me, um, you know, g- raise more than a few quizzical eyebrows amongst my, you know, white, <laughs> young, you know, uh, trend-setting, shall I say, uh, front-of-house um, colleagues. You know, I, I would sit with cooks. I, I would sit with the Latino cooks. I, w- I, would have, I would have breaks with them. I would share food with them. I would listen to their stories, um, you know, restaurants, something I, I probably don't pay as much attention to in the narrative book, but there's a lot of downtime, right? Everyone, everyone pays attention to the, um, the, the height of the rush, right, which is this really, really heady moment of, of, of pressure. I used to have, gosh, I used to have nightmares <laughs> about being what, what's called in the weeds, um, you know, just, oh, my goodness, just forgetting orders and 10 things to do at once and, and, and only time for one of them. Anyway, but, but I, I think relevant to your question is spending downtime, spending breaks, um, spending time um, after I had clocked out or before I had clocked in, um, in spaces that were more sort of symbolically and spatially associated with the back of house. Um, kitchens, uh, dishwashing stations, even you know, one of the three restaurants had a lower floor Um, which is an interesting sort of symbolism, but had a lower floor where the cleaning staff would primarily operate. Um, This is where linens got washed and aprons got folded and um, sort of returned so that the chefs could pick them up the next day. Well, anyway, that that was a space where, um, you know, more of the... Latina and, and even Latin, uh, Latina and Latino uh, staff was located uh, where they would spend a lot of time. And it became important to me to, you know, to, to volunteer to be the one to, to go down there and to, you know, to spend more time. Um, so that, that was really a, a conscious decision that I made um, precisely because my inn was not in the kitchen. And frankly, uh, for the life of me, I could not figure out how to let management let me spend uh, labor time um, operating in the kitchen. You know, doing the work of line work, who were far more talented and skilled uh, at right. uh, doing that than I was.
1: Yeah.
0: So what, what you just said was really interesting. Um, and I think we might have a bunch of follow up questions, but I want to zero in on one particular thing you said, which is that um, your coworkers sort of thought it was strange. Your front of the house coworkers, I should say. Thought it was strange that you were spending time with back of the house people, which is um, really telling about something that you describe beautifully as these two different, very separate worlds, where people who, you know, work together for long, long periods of time share uh, share what seems like one space. You know, end up not even knowing each other's names. Just uh, something specific that you described. Um, so reading that. Uh I, I thought it was an excellent example of something that we talk about a lot as ethnographers, um, which is not, you know, that you got this job so you could be a fly on the wall and just observe um, or, you know, this, this same point would apply to many of our projects, but uh, that our very presence is productive of data and um, so I also thought about like your, your story in the introduction or the preface, I forget, but kind of how you open the book, um, which is that you were promoted. You were in a position that was sort of in between front of the house and back of the house. Um, and I'm actually forgetting what the, what the position is called, but um, a position with less interaction with customers with less uh, financial rewards. Right. And you were promoted to be a bartender. Um, and this is a, uh, you said yourself, uh, modestly, you said that your, your coworkers were more capable than you in, in sort of the, the work of, um, you know, getting food out to people, picking up dirty dishes, all of that stuff, but, uh, that it was your identity, which you've also talked about. That was the reason that you were, um, were promoted. Um, so this is a, a sort of a long preface to, to a question which um, I'd just like you to go into a little more depth um, and how uh, the experiences that you had, you know, not just what you observed, but your presence in the field, how that was uh, important to the, to the conclusions you draw and people's reaction to you. Absolutely.
2: You know, I, I think a lot of ethnographers talk about the embodied dimension of fieldwork. Um, I, I think that that's not... That's not news by any means. And I certainly would fully concur that a lot of my best data came from that, you know, day in and day out grind and, and reflecting on that grind. And, uh, of, of course, you know, kind of mining my own thoughts as well as my interactions with others. Um, the, the, the tiredness in my feet after a, uh, after a double shift. Uh, that is where you, you work two shifts in a row. Um, sometimes upwards of 10, 12 hours. Um, These kind of things are, are, uh, boy, I I, I think it's the bread and butter of of any good ethnography um, to to think about that and and to to use that as data. And and frankly, to use that as a springboard for more insights. So I totally believe um, in that. You know, I I think the the situation that I recount in the preface, which actually predates my formal fieldwork, um, this this was really about finding the kernel of of my interest in this project. I I think that that really reveals um, the way that those that those embodied you know I- I- experiences of of, of doing um, and then thinking about what you're doing uh, are generative of questions. Um, and that more than anything was was what that you know was that was what that experience. Really meant to me. Um, it was being confused um, and and firsthand uh, about why why me. <laughs> I don't know if if that exact expression made it into the book. This this question of why why me. But I can tell you. What, I, I can tell you. It was something that I was thinking about at night. <laughs> it was something that I was thinking about as I walked in the door. And it was something that I was frankly in the back. It was in the back of my mind when I was interacting with. Uh, the very people who look different than me, um, uh, you know, when I when I would have to look them in the eye and and you know and and reflect on why me and why not you um, being promoted to a position that at the time you know as you know as, as someone in that position I, I you know it was a it was a, pr- a huge economic uh, leap to to work behind the bar as opposed to what's called fu- uh, running food or food running. Um, mass massive uh, you know we're talking nearly twice as much in in tips um so it's no small gesture it's no small subtle distinction um within the labor world of restaurants to make that leap it's it's a categorical leap and frankly you know as i as i recount over and over in the book it's it's a social and symbolic uh you know leap across that divide as well Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and um You know, we were very intrigued by your discussions of how workplace marginalization and worker mobility are interlinked. And this, um, for us, was a precise example of how certain structural logics are that escape notice, unless afforded the keen attention that ethnography equips us with how that works, you know, that kind of illumination. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about why some of the Latino workers you spent time with were able to secure better quality jobs and why some others were not?
2: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really great question. And I, 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 love that. I love that insight because I think it shows the power of ethnography, as, as you alluded to, Sneha, um, in, in that, you know, the, 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 the world the, on the ground, a lot of these things that we find are complicated. And some of the best insights come from taking serious, I, I, well, I guess, what would, what would be formally known as deviant cases. But you know, I don't know. I, I that always sounds too formulaic. <laughs> uh, I, I simply mean, in my context, paying attention to who, you know, who uh, amongst the Latino workers in restaurants w- did seem to be getting ahead, and maybe why. Um, and getting ahead, you know, I, I like this expression, but I, I recognize that it's vague. <laughs> And I think it takes two distinct forms, at least within the world of, of restaurants and, and the hierarchies that are apparent there. The first would be um, being promoted to the service staff and uh, moving from an invisible position, doing uh, busing work or um, just food running where one is not really expected to talk with um, customers, um, really just shuttle food, which I call, I call support work. Um, in the book, precisely for that reason. But moving to a more visible front of house role, um, you know, making that making making that that kind of leap, um, being promoted to that status. So that's one type of getting ahead, and that's getting ahead for financial reasons. Um, but it also also opens uh, a variety of, of um, you know a variety of, of doors that that differ from um, being stuck in um, you know in the kitchen or in support roles. Uh, the second kind of getting ahead that I think is of interest here is moving up the kitchen ladder to, um, to roles of prominence within that space, to roles of authority, um, you know, small, small movements of getting, getting paid more, having more responsibility within the kitchen. Um, and that's a very meaningful uh, kind of promotion and advancement, especially to, um, to cooks. Uh, and so there were, there were these two simultaneous ways in which I conceived of getting ahead more broadly. And, um, and I, I really became fascinated by the kind of workers that seemed to be able to make those moves. Now, one thing that I, I talk about, um, I, I talk about some of the advantages of being, um, of, of exhibiting or, inhabit or or embodying in-betweenness. And that's sort of the term I, I, I came to use. It just seemed like it made the most sense. And what I mean by in-betweenness is it was simultaneously drawing on um, sort of uh, the, the, the tacit skills developed um, uh, you know, of, of working hard, running food well, uh, knowing how to carry plates, I'm talking about support work, um, knowing how to sort of navigate uh, the, the space uh, well, and, and in the kitchen, the same kind of thing, knowing how to chop faster, knowing how to multitask, knowing how to time, time dishes. But I, I in between this, also captured a social dimension. It was being able to communicate with um, you know in Spanish and and sort of it, within the cultural world, um, deeply informed by um, Latino and I would also say male culture um, in the kitchen and also in support jobs. Um, so being able to communicate and, and be present within that space, and then also being able to code switch you know socially and and culturally. And um, communicate with the white servers, with the white managers, with the white male cooks, uh, sorry, chefs, and that became a crucial source of advantage. And the way I conceived of it, it became a primary way that uh, that some of some of the um, you know you know some of the Latino workers in restaurants were able to get ahead and, and also leapfrog some of their other coworkers who were less able to do that very same car- that very same. Uh, sort of skill, that skill of in-betweenness. Uh, now, the last thing I'll say, I'm sorry, I've been being a little long-winded here. No, no, please, but this is really thing,
1: interesting. Oh, yeah.
2: The last thing I'll say about that that became super interesting to me was how some of the characteristics of in-betweenness were predicated on the relative lack of that same characteristic uh, amongst other kinds of Latino uh, colleagues. So such that, you know, the source of one's advantage is premised in part on the, um, you know, sort of the embeddedness, the stuckedness, if you will, of another cohort of Latino workers in, um, you know, in positions that were uh, that they that they were mired within. They were not getting ahead. They were stuck as, say, dishwashers, low, really low paid Uh, dishwashers um, who had been doing this for years, sometimes decades, without a single promotion. Um, And also um, working as as members of the cleaning staff. And when I started to recognize that there was a distinction between those that were accelerating ahead and those who were stuck behind or stuck really deep, deep um, in the in. To use an evocative metaphor, in the, in the bowels of, of restaurants, in, in the closets, in the back closets of restaurants, and that's a term I use, um, that became a, a fascinating way to think about um, you know some of the sources of, of advantage and further barriers of exclusion um, within the um, you know sort of Latino back of the house in restaurants.
0: I, I think that was really really telling um, and interesting about sort of the the nature of. You know how we think about identity, and not as sociologists, as as people, as as members of society, um, identity and race and ethnicity, um, and you know what kind of people were able to to have that in betweenness um, and whatnot. I, I really enjoyed your your analysis of that, um, but I want to go back to in betweenness as an ethnographer, um, which you you know you talked about your efforts to. Uh, to engage back of the house people Um, and that uh, your coworkers thought it was a little, thought it was a little strange, Um, which for me raises the question, you know, did, did people know what you were doing in the restaurant that you weren't just, you know, waiting tables and trying to make friends to, to go hang out with after work, but, um, but your, your research project. Um, So how, how did you explain that to to coworkers both in the front and the back of the house? Yeah, so that's always, you know, that's always an important question um and
2: and sometimes, you know, this was a project where I didn't very strategically, I did not come in, you know, car, with a with a, you know, student card, flashing my student card, flashing my, you know, um, ethnographer or sociologist card and asking, "Okay, well, you know, could could, could you let me have a job here?" I, uh, I for, for strategic reasons, I, you know, did all of my job search and, you know, initial kind of integration within, within this workplace um, without, you know, without you know, prior, prior uh, knowledge of either management or, or my coworkers of what I was doing. Um, that was, of course, something that I had to reveal um, as, you know, after I had established that initial rapport, that was always part of my strategy. That was always my intention. Um, and I, at each restaurant, I had, I had, you know, speaking about my relationship with management, I was a worker first and a sociologist and an ethnographer second. And so I had those conversations with management, sat them down, um, told them a little bit about my project, um, you know, sort of strategically played up, um, you know, kind of, or I should rather played down um, the gravity of what I was doing in the sense that I made sure to convey I was a student, which was absolutely true. I was a graduate student i was doing a project i was doing a project on what it's like to work in restaurants and that was all true i mean probably understated you know you know some of what i was going uh what was what was really occurring but it was in my opinion that was that was that helped them feel at ease with what i was doing and be open to um you know to to not changing their behavior towards me or, or thinking different now in terms of my relationship with workers uh, those conversations uh, emerged more organically, especially with um, you know my colleagues in the front of the house. Um, it became similarly. It became, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing this project on on restaurant work. I'm I'm you know I'm um, I'm, I'm thinking about what we do every day, and I'm, I'm taking notes. And frankly, they were very receptive um, uh, to to this. They were they were some of them were you know. Um, uh, just they were they they thought it was really cool that <laughs> uh, this stuff could be in a book one day. Um, they, uh, you know, I, I I think there was there was always that inevitable awkwardness at, at first, like oh you know gosh should I sh- should I or should I not tell Eli you know something or behave differently. But that stuff resolved itself very quickly. I and I think um, I think it's because I was a worker first. I was somebody who established I was there to work hard. I had gone through the same training and orientation and I had fell on my face just as they had. Uh, so that was really important to me, you know, and in the kitchen, I I really think it was, it was an extension of that. Um, it became, I'll tell you just, just to nuance it a little bit further. Um, I think I really leaned on my contacts, some key contacts in the kitchen to kind of get my foot in the door to the space that I was not fully present, you know, really a, a, a full you know, member um, of you know not being hired in in the in the kitchen, and certainly um, talking different, looking different from from those individuals. So, what I mean by that, and and this goes to an earlier question uh, that I think Alex that that you raised. Um, it became really important to me to establish some key informants, some key people that I was following in the kitchen. These people tended to be um, well. I'll tell you the first trait. They tended to be bilingual, um, and and fluent, fluently bilingual, um, because, you know, I, in, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm, I'm not proficient in Spanish. I, I picked up um, functional Spanish that, that could serve me well in a kitchen space, you know, kind of crude, crude kitchen space for understanding. Um, but I lean heavily on bilingual participants. Um, and some of them were immigrants um, who, you know, had in over the course of their time working in this country had, had learned English. Um, others were um, others were second generation, you know, born and raised in LA, and um, I really befriended them, um, and and had a kind of a, a deep relationship with some of them. Would go out after work, would 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 hang out on breaks with these individuals, and they became really crucial for me to help me understand that space and to help uh, people in the kitchen be more comfortable with what I was doing, um, and and I mean that as a researcher. Uh, writing a book uh, and and um, you know ultimately interviewing them, spending time with them that I would record, um, and and so all of that kind of emerged, um, you know, emerged over time rather than sort of upfront and 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 really formal.
0: Did you did you get any resistance? Um, I guess just for our listeners who haven't uh, read the book, which they should because it's excellent. <laughs> um, but you know, you write uh, that there's there's sort of a I don't know if rivalry is the right world word, but there's these two very separate social worlds front of the house, back of the house. And there's, um, I guess, problems of translation. There's resentment mm-hmm. between the two worlds. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, could see that you might potentially get some resistance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point, Alex. And I, you know i I
2: try in the book to be as transparent as I can about how I manage that because you're certainly right uh you know just to reiterate it is not normal it is not typical for somebody especially somebody who looks like me to be to be that um, to be to be spending that much time you know with people in the back of house and to be frankly that interested in uh You know what goes on um interested in their lives and also what goes on in in the back of the house in the kitchen and and so on and so forth um and you know i think on one hand to your point i think that does raise very real questions about tension that that might have caused and i do i think in the book i do talk a little bit uh, about some some moments where my presence as somebody primarily in the front of house and some of the things that were just typical of the front of house, for instance, tips, um, you know, I, I receive tips just like every other server and bartender and, and host and to some extent food runner and busser. Uh, I, I, you know, that tips were, were very much, you know, a, a, a huge part of what it means to work in that space. Um, the kitchen workers didn't. And that's something I I, I talk a lot and I've thought a lot about. Well, anyway, there were moments where, uh, as you might imagine, um, those tips became, um, are are a source of major contention between between front and back of house. And the fact that I received tips and they didn't, um, including people that I consider friends, um, kitchen workers, um, that that was certainly something that I, I think... Uh, was a thorn in our relationship at times and was difficult to navigate for me, to, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I, I think at the same time, so again, the tension was certainly there. I will also say, though, that I, um, ironically, because there is such a divide um, between, you know, between these, these worker cohorts, Sometimes small acts go a long way, uh, and that may seem kind of quaint to point out, but I'll tell you what I mean by that. I, I found that precisely because there was this kind of mutual ignorance and tension that sort of uh, was, was kind of, I don't know, sometimes the air was thick in, in between the kitchen staff and, and the front of house. Um, you know, the conversations were different. The, the, the things that were muttered sometimes about each other were different. Because of all that, just the fact that I was making concerted efforts to get to know people in the back of house, um, you know, my, my Latino colleagues back there. Um, the the fact that I would hang out with them, I'd, I'd um, you know I'd sneak them, I'd sneak them sodas, and I'd sneak them sometimes even beers. I hope I hope my old managers aren't listening right now, but I would I, you know we would do this because I saw how hard they were working, especially as I got to know their story. And I think that these small gestures, um, you know, I don't I don't want to overblow this, but I I think that they were meaningful. Um, and as a small example of that, um, I in every restaurant that I worked at, um, I, I you know I got a nickname. <laughs> I got a nickname from 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 my Latino workers who were you know the, the cooks and the dishwashers. They 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 gave me a name that they would call me a pet name. Um, and I say that, and again, I I understand that this may sound really quaint, but I was one of the only. Members of the front of house that got that nickname, and of course they all had nicknames, um, you know, for each other. But you know, I, I was nicknamed things like Leche, milk in <laughs> Spanish. I mean, really, they would call me milk. And yes, it has racial undertones, but it was a it was a joking matter, right? It was, um, you know, hey, le- Leche is here again. You know, let let's let's slap hands and you know and 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 talk story for a little bit. Um, and that occurred in every single, it wasn't the same nickname, but it, this this pattern was something that was important for me to establish. It was a sign that I had gained a, a kind of liminal um, membership and dare I say friendship with these individuals. Um, and all of that, I, I can't emphasize enough, was so different from how they related to their other coworkers, many of whom uh, they did not even know by name, right? It became... Um, you know, it became that they would come to me and ask, "Hey, you know, can you flag down the that 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 blonde girl in the glasses, right? Or uh, you know, and sometimes it'd be very crude, right? It'd be, hey, you know, t- tell <laughs> tell tell the fat server uh, that he, he he's got to you know slow down his orders. We're getting we're getting killed back here. You know, it would be relaying that to me um, because of I I think my kind of position that I, I very deliberately that I very meaningfully tried to establish, and, and that became you know, one way in which I think I use some of these these differences, apparent differences, um, maybe to my advantage a little bit um, as, a, as a source of, of data collection and um, kind of liminal insider status. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in more practical terms, I guess, um, uh, related to what you were talking about. So what when you were working and having these interactions, uh, were you taking down field notes on the go, like, or were you going home and writing everything down? Um, yeah, what was your, I guess, your practical modus operandi? Mm-hmm. Well,
2: I'm afraid I, I I don't have any profound insight on, on this front, Sneha. I, I, um, I tried to carry a notebook, um, as was recommended, you know, as I was kind of saddling up to do field work, and I was sitting in classes at UCLA on, On best practices, I definitely intended that. Um, I can say that that quickly didn't work. (laughs) I uh, restaurants happen. Life in restaurants happens so fast, and I had my hands absolutely full, being um, you know a a full time restaurant worker. Um, And um, frankly, um, you know, I was on stage. You know, as 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 Goffman might say. I was on stage, not just to my coworkers and managers, but I was also on stage to customers. And I, I could not find um, for the life of me a time to, um, you know, make sense of, of taking notes sort of in the moment. Uh, what, I, what, what became really, really important to me was to take notes immediately afterwards. Um, and this would be, yeah, this was many long nights uh, staying up, you know, forcing myself to not go to bed, you know, after a night shift until one, two in the morning, until I had collected my thoughts on what had occurred that day. Um, So, you know, while I think that that's fairly typical, you know, a a resolution of how best to capture the ethnographic world um, and and to do so by typing up field notes afterwards, that was absolutely true of, of my experience.
0: Yeah, I think I think mm-hmm. that sort of the the moment when you finish fieldwork and you're going yeah. home or to a cafe or whatever, and you think about everything that that's just happened and everything that you need to write down, mm-hmm. uh, is something that I think a lot of ethnographers um, can relate to. Um, Absolutely. So speaking of relatable things, uh, we're just sort of generally interested in the kind of dilemmas that ethnographers face, um, and eventually we hope resolve. Um, Hmm. So was there any moments that you would uh, identify from your field work where you were maybe concerned about something, not sure, um, not sure if you'd be able to continue uh, any interruptions Hmm. and, and how could, how did you resolve these issues?
2: Hmm. Well, let me point out three and I'll I'll focus on the last one because I think it's probably the most novel. (laughs) The first one I'd say is the practical consideration that I, uh, ethical consideration as well, that I was an employee and I, you know, wasn't at liberty to kind of do the fly uh, fly on the wall thing that other ethnographers are, are able to do because they're not an employee. And maybe the most apt comparison here would be to Gary Allen Fine who, you know, he has a, a wonderful book, a, a huge inspiration to me called Kitchens. Um, and, you know, I was certainly reading that. Um, but, you know, something of, of note here is that he was the fly on the wall. He was somebody who, you know, petitioned management, I, I don't know the exact details, to basically observe kitchen workers. And I, I think he has some somewhat humorous stories of um, uh, being allowed to kind of volunteer in the kitchen and, and attempt to do you know, to, to fit into the flow of what, of what cooks do. Um, and, you know, I, I think he fully recounts how challenging that was. So I wasn't able to do that. Um, I was an employee, excuse me, I, I was a worker and an employee and had, had managers evaluating me as such. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to take that seriously. And sometimes, even when I knew that there was great data to be had, um, there was the table that needed another refill of, of, of wine, beer, maybe even water. That was my job. (laughs) And that is where my attention had to, by necessity, um, go. So there's that. Uh, The second ethical dilemma I alluded to earlier, which was recognizing that uh, that I was, that there was such disparity, um, both within the structure of restaurants in terms of who was earning what money Uh, And how and, you know, something that I still find disturbing to this day is the fact that we in the front of the house, myself included, because of my position, we were making, I would say, three times, uh, sometimes four times more per hour than our back of house colleagues. Uh, That disparity blew my mind. It, It became something that I was deeply troubled by. Um, but was nonetheless a reality experienced by every single person who works in restaurants. Uh, We did not share tips uh, by the structure of the restaurant with with the back of house. Uh, In fact, there was, until very recently, there were laws against that, um, which always uh, are astounding to me. Um, Cooks can I'm sorry, (laughs) tips can only be served. That's a whole other conversation, but needless to say, uh, at the time I was in restaurants, um, tips were what that was the jurisdiction and the monies of of people working in the front of house. Um, and so uh, that was a, a, a source of tremendous tension, um, interpersonal tension, as I mentioned. You know, sometimes cooks looking on at, at these gaudy bills being passed back and forth among servers and bartenders that they did not have access to, but also was a tremendous source of ethical qualm for me. Should I, for instance, be handing some of that, you know, go out of my way, uh, breaking with uh, restaurant norm and tradition to be handing them some of that money, to, redistributing it on my own, you know, accord. Um, and I, I was torn about this. Um, it was something ultimately I did not do in that, in that formal sense of like handing them bills as if, as if tipping them or, or really what's known as tipping out people. Precisely because that was um, that was that was not not just the norm, but that was also not part of the tip rules uh, within restaurants. I will say that uh, wherever possible, you know, I I I tried to go out of my way to make gestures, to buy them beers after shift, Um, bring bring in sometimes beers and small treats um, that would for them, Um, you know. So I did not again. It was my somewhat, I, I, probably it was my personal way of resolving my own, um, you know, moral and ethical um, qualms than anything. But that was something that I chose to do. Uh, let me just point out my, the, 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 the third, probably most interesting ethical or, or just kind of fieldwork dilemma that I experienced. Um, and that was at the second restaurant that I was employed at and that I spent time within. This was a restaurant called Terroir. Uh, And at Terroir, which I do say in the book, was actually the highest-end restaurant in many ways, uh, the setting of the most explicit, you know, uh, traditional luxury. Um, The restaurant went through a period while I was there where it wasn't doing very well and i you know i don't include these details because i i I thought that they would be distracting for the the ultimate narrative um which was one of of a worker dynamic and you know and, and so on and so forth but in terms of field work uh this restaurant was really struggling and it became it came to the point that it was getting very uncomfortable to be there uh, to be there every day, because there was just no money to go around now that that may seem only loosely connected, but let let me let me explain how that manifested in very real ways. Uh, there was no tips to go around, and there became these internal squabbles between front of house staff um, about you know jockeying for tables, meaning really jockeying for who was going to make tips that day um and, you know, it became this incredible source of tension. Also, just the mood in the front of the house became absolute poison. It became instead of camaraderie and, you know, this jovial sense of, oh, gosh, you know, we're, we're, we're having fun. We're goofing around, all that. It became daggers. It became, <laughs> you know, why aren't you helping me more, you know, take care of this table? You know, why did you do this? Why didn't you share, you know, tips uh, in, in this way. Um, I'm going, you know, I'm going to storm off and you do all the side work. Um, I deserve to leave. You know, it became people quitting outright. It became people bad-mouthing um, the restaurant, the management, the coworkers, the kitchen staff. Uh, and, and I saw some of that also manifesting amongst, amongst the cooks who are used to working hard and always being in motion. And all of a sudden, uh, there was not much to do. For, for, you know, shifts on end in weeks on end. And I think the dilemma that raised for me was I was seeing my coworkers workers um, just quit outright. And I also saw management start leaning on me as a worker more and more, even knowing I was doing research, you know, saying, hey, can you come in? You know, and, and really there was a pleading quality to their voice, like, hey, you're one of the few people that Seems to come in here, smile on their face, wants to work hard. We need you. We need you every shift. Come in. Can you come in six days a week? Can you, can you stay for a double? These questions were posed to me precisely because I wanted, you know, I, I was willing to work hard to be there. But ultimately, the subtext is the reason I wanted to be there was because I was also a researcher, right? I, I needed to be there. I needed to collect that data. I needed to experience that setting. Um, but that was also, you know, had an interesting kind of strange bedfellow effect that management leaned on that, you know, almost, I, I guess one could use the word exploited that even more to have me come in more and more and more. And eventually I had to say no. I had to say, hey, you know, I, I, I got to I gotta hold this a day, you know, five shifts a week. That's a lot. I'm, I, I, I got, I, I'm a full time student, you know, so. Yeah, that became a a source of tension.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I can only imagine trying to to hold down a, a job like that while while also being in graduate school. Um, so to shift to shift quickly, um, as we as we finish up, uh, we were really curious to know what ethnographic texts inspired you um, as you were doing fieldwork and and writing even. Yeah. So. Hmm.
2: You know, I, I, when, when you kind of posed that question to me kind of before we got started on the air, I will say that uh, a major source of my inspiration was seeing more senior, um, deeply committed ethnographers within my graduate program at UCLA. Um, and in, in particular, I'm thinking about David Trulli, uh, who I, I believe you spoke with um, <laughs> A few weeks back for this very podcast, um, you know, and and he's not the only one um, by by any means. Uh, Forrest Stewart was another tremendous inspiration. But just seeing them go through um, the, the critical steps of ethnography, um, right, and and asking questions about their field sites. We used to have working group meetings where they would bring uh, real live data and watching them grapple with it, right? Almost with a twinkle in their eye. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty easy for me to romanticize those early moments, just being in the same room with um, you know, these, these scholars who are a little bit more my senior, um, when I, especially in my, my formative years as, as a developing ethnographer, and just seeing, how, seeing their process, right? Being an insider to their world as ethnographers and um, the way they connected to the theory, the way they asked questions, Um, The way they let their curiosity guide them, and um, I'm I'm so happy for them that all of their books are published. Um, You know, Forrest has has won awards, and I'm I'm sure others will follow. So that that was something that really stuck with me. Um, So, you know, for for those of you listening who are who are graduate students, um, I I I hope um, that you have a lively, you know, thriving. Uh, community of ethnographers. And um, and I don't just mean your professor mentors. I, I really do mean um, fellow colleagues in graduate school. So there's there's certainly that. Um, in terms of actual text, the one that really stands out to me um, is Rachel Sherman's Class Act. Um, I absolutely uh, adored that book, especially when I was in the field. Um, and I love the detail she captured um, and of course, that, that book is about hotel work, uh, luxury hotel work. And so, you know, there was certainly some resonance in terms of the empirical detail. Um, but I, I also loved the, how she was able to capture that world, both as a, as a worker in that space and, you know, also those, those moments where she was using dialogue to tell stories. She was uh, recounting different workers who had different experiences. So um, you know, Class Acts was was a major inspiration um, on that front.
1: Yeah, that's. Um, I was just taking down some notes as you were speaking about um, proposing some kind of like ethnography uh, grad student thing in at your Chicago as well. So thanks for that, hat tip. And um, yeah, Rachel Sherman's Class Acts is is really really classic. So glad it got this shout out. Um, before we let you go, and we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, we would really love to know what are you working on right now and what can we expect to read by you in the future?
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, after after the years and years of, you know, being in the thick of, of restaurant, um, you know, working in restaurants. And then, my goodness, just the the multi-year process of turning that into a book, which, uh, you know, is um, something I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of um, and also equally willing to recognize just how long an endeavor that that was. Um, you know, uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago at this point, I did get started with uh, a new project. It was a project that emerged, I think, fairly seamlessly from from you know what I was thinking about in restaurants, and frankly, some of the same contexts, which is I, I recognize that not everyone's able to do, and that is I uh, I, I really became fascinated um, with the world of craft beer, <laughs> and. I, I really shouldn't act like I'm, I should be so surprised here. Um, this was my f- one of my first loves you know, as I was uh, coming out of being an undergrad. But I, I became super interested in um, you know, this incredible explosion of interest in craft beer, in, in artisanship, in craft making. And I became interested in it not as a consumer, although I certainly am that and, and have been for some time. Some might even call me a beer geek. Um, and I would accept that you know sort of knowingly, uh, but I, that was that's not the the focus of this research i'm I'm really focused focused on the labor of of craft uh craft work and more specifically craft beer, and doing the same kind of gesture that I kind of um you know was thinking through both empirically and theoretically in in the restaurant project, which is is going further and further behind the scenes seeing interconnected actors along this um you know what's what anselm strauss would call this arc of labor um you know the various hands that end up touching that go into creating craft beer um, many of which will never gain accolades for doing so um, and are well beyond uh, the world of beer geeks and people who uh, love and care and participate in in the world of consuming beer (laughs) so um, you know, and I, I wanted to explore that as an ethnographer, um, spend time in brew houses and, and just hang out um, in that classic ethnographic sense with people who are brewing beer and see how they, they talk about it, see how they use their hands to make it, um, see, you know, you know, be a part of that ambiance. Um, what's, you know, oftentimes heavy metal <laughs> blaring in the background as, you know, as tattooed, you know, bearded white men um, throw 55 pound bags of malt into the mash tun, you know, these are, these are fascinating to me. And they bring up, of course, really compelling questions about race, about culture, uh, about identity and, and all threaded, um, all threaded together within this, uh, this world of work. Um, so anyway, craft beer, (laughs) craft beer is my current project and, uh, I hope to bring this kind of richness.
1: What's that? you have a captive audience in me already, so. Oh. You
2: know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I, it's it's ongoing, but I, I'm I'm really excited. And and again, it was uh, what I view as a fairly natural outgrowth um, from from my time in restaurants.
0: Well, Eli, the, this project sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to um, to reading for that uh, your your work from from that research project as well. Um, and want to thank you for coming on and really congratulate you on a wonderful book. Uh, which for our listeners is Front of the House, Back of the House, Race and Inequality in the Lives of Restaurant Workers um, by Eli Wilson. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was great to, to have you on and, and sort of hear a little bit about the, the back of the house of your uh, ethnographic practice. Um, so thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thank you. You know both both to Alex and, and Snail for this opportunity. You know, it's not often that um, that the some really really thoughtful questions get posed my way uh, about the process of ethnography, not not only the substance uh the, the, the theoretical and empirical uh, uh, substance. So, um, really, thank you for the time taking the time to read this book and and for um, you know for for your really thoughtful engagement with it.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming on, and uh, yeah, take care and stay safe.
2: <laughs> will do, you, you as well.